But if you guys have your Bibles, open to John 4. We're going to be in John 4 tonight. And tonight we're actually starting a new topical teaching series, which we're going to call Faithful. Um, that's the title of this series, Faithful. And we're going to try to answer a couple of questions. Who has God called me to be? And what has God called me to do? Okay, Faithful. And I like how um, one author uh, kind of defined, or this is what he said about faithfulness. He said that faithfulness is both lifelong and life-wide. Okay, lifelong and life-wide. Um, it's lifelong in the sense that uh, faithful means faithfulness means that you are steadfast, right? You're committed to something. Um, it means that you are willing to see things through. It means that uh, you you finish what you started, right? You finish what's been assigned to you. And one of our main ministry goals here in Beacon is to grow you as lifelong disciples of Jesus, right? That you wouldn't just be a follower of Christ uh, during your time in college, but that you would be men and women who follow hard after him long after your college years, long after your graduation. And so we, we aim for that, that lifelong faithfulness. I might think of the Christian author J.I. Packer. Maybe you, some of you have heard of him. Um, he, he's really old now. Uh, he's, he said this quote when he was 91 years old. He was losing his vision. Uh, he said, I want to be found sprinting the last lap of the race of the Christian life when God calls me home. Right? He talks about how in a race you save your energy so you can sprint all out at the end. And he said, that's what I want to do with the Christian life. I want to be sprinting at the very end. Uh, that's that's a picture of lifelong faithfulness, right? And that's I think that that's what we think of faithfulness most often. We think lifelong, um, but faithfulness is also life wide. Okay, and I, I think for for you as college students, this is the aspect of faithfulness that is easier to forget. For example, you are a student, right? And that is that is a significant part of your identity right now. That is a high calling. Um, which God has given you right now. And it's not just because your parents are paying your like ridiculous tuition, right? It's not just because what you do now is going to uh, determine, you know, your career and, and uh, affect your future. Um, but it's because uh, what you're like, the work itself is meaningful, right? If you were with us last year, when we went through Ecclesiastes, um, your studying itself, right? Being in school itself is not just a stepping stone, but it's meaningful, right? And it's an act of worship as you use the gifts and skills that God has given to you. And so being a student is a high calling, but you aren't only a student, right? Being a student is not the be-all, end-all of your identity. In fact, if that's all that you see yourself as, then there's a good chance that you were being unfaithful to all the other areas of your life that God has called you to. And I think a very obvious example of this is during midterms and finals. And you guys like know what happens during that time. When school gets busy, when there's a big exam coming up, oftentimes what happens is college students, you guys, you just completely drop everything else in your life. Right? Like no, no time to spare for friends, you know, no time to uh, spare for chores in your apartment or your dorm, no time for church, uh, no time for personal hygiene, all right, not, not, no time at all for anything else until that exam is over or until you finish that paper. And I'm not saying that there aren't times when it is appropriate to hunker down to say no to certain things for the sake of studying or, you know, fill in the blank, whatever else that might be. 
But what I am seeing is that God has called us to faithfulness in so many other areas of your life as well. Right? So many other areas that are equally important, if not more important. And so that's the thought behind this series. And each week we're going to remind you of a specific role or a specific identity that God has called you to. You're not just a student, but you are also, um, you're a learner, right? You are a friend. You are a church member. You are a disciple maker. You are a steward. And we can go on and on. We've just chosen a few of them. Um, But you are all of these things, right? And paying attention to all of these things is what it looks like to be faithful. Now, let me uh, mention just one more thought before we jump in for tonight. Maybe you hear all of that and you, you heard me just list like, all of these identities and these roles and these responsibilities. And you're thinking, like, how do I even do all of this? Maybe for you, you're you're thinking, okay, I already have a hard enough time being a student. Like, that's already a struggle for me. And now you tell me there's all of these other areas of my life that God has called me to to do as well. How do I even balance all of that? And to that, I would say, remember that we're talking about faithfulness and not perfection. Okay, faithfulness and not perfection. In fact, a lifelong and a life-wide God-honoring faithfulness, it might mean that you don't get the results that you want or that you don't reach your highest academic potential. And I'm just using academics as an example. You can apply that to any other area of your life. And so it takes honestly asking yourself, what areas of my life have become too important? And what other areas of my life have become neglected, right? What other areas of my life are not important enough? And so that's, that's our thought for this series. Uh, we think it's an appropriate way to start out the school year, um, or just as we think about, yeah, school and your college years. Um, and so for tonight, the first role or the first identity that I want to remind you of is that you are a worshiper. You are a worshiper. Um, and actually, the worship leader, Leighton, pretty much just preach my sermon so I can just close in prayer. But I feel like we have to start here because it is so foundational. Okay. And you guys know this, right? Worship is the most important thing. Worship is why everything exists. The worship of Christ. Um, Think of what Jesus calls the first greatest commandment. He said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul and with all your mind. Or you might've heard this question from the Westminster uh, shorter catechism before it says, what is the chief end of man? And uh, the answer is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And John Piper likes to mention that a lot. Um, or, or the Apostle Paul's words in Romans 11, Leighton actually read from this passage. It says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Now, I know I used a few different words there. Uh, But it's the same idea, that everything exists for the glory and the worship of God. And so before we even get to the horizontal, like what are your responsibilities to one another, we have to talk about the vertical. We have to talk about worship. You are called to be a worshiper. You're called to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And there's a lot of different passages we probably could have turned to. For tonight, but the one I chose is John 4, um, and we'll look at verses 1 to 26. Uh, You guys might be familiar with this portion of scripture. It is the account of Jesus, uh, his encounter with this Samaritan woman at the well. 
And we're not going to really go through like a complete exposition of this passage, but my goal is just to extract a few principles that I think this passage teaches us about our identity as worshipers. Okay, I think uh, this is why I chose this passage in particular, just our identity as worshipers. Um, This is a long passage, so let me just point out a few things as we jump in. Um, You can just kind of skim through verses 1 to 6. But it tells us that that Jesus and his disciples, they they depart from Judea, which is in the south. And they go up to Galilee, which is, you would travel north. Um, And to get there, you would have to pass through this region called Samaria. Okay, and Samaria was uh, the most direct way. And so it was probably the most common uh, route. Um, And so when John says in verse 4, it says Jesus had to pass through Samaria. right? He could be just pointing out like, a logistical, uh, like geographical fact, right? Like from, uh, to say, uh, you know, to get to UCLA from, from here in Torrance, right? You would have to pass through cities like Hawthorne or Inglewood or El Segundo um, or Culver City, right? So, so maybe John is saying that Jesus had to pass through Samaria just geographically. But if you're familiar with this passage at all, you might know that many commentators, they note uh, some more significance to that phrase, that Jesus had to pass through Samaria in verse 4. Now, it wasn't a matter of just like Samaria happened to be on the way, and so he had to go through. Rather, John is talking about this intentionality, this uh, purposefulness, this compulsion, that, that Jesus had this divine appointment in Samaria. Um, the King James Version, which we don't use very often, but <clears throat> it translates it as, uh, Jesus must needs go through Samaria. It's an interesting way to put it. He must needs go through Samaria. And I think it's inter- or it's surprising because as a Jew, Samaria was not the kind of place that you must needs go through ever. Okay, this was the kind of place that you would avoid. In fact, there were some Jews, even though it was the most direct route, there were some Jews who would purposefully like, take a more roundabout way so that they would avoid going through Samaria. And to understand why, we have to understand that the Samaritans and the Jews, they didn't like each other. Okay, a history lesson about Samaritans real quick. Assyria invaded, um, and, and they, they carried many of the Jews away to captivity in Assyria. Um, but some remained behind, those who were poor. And so the Assyrians came in, and they intermarried with those who were still there. Uh, and so... You had this like blending and mingling together of cultures and religions, right? And so the Jews saw the Samaritans as these like religious and racial half-breeds. They were the people who intermingled with this enemy nation. Um, And if you look in verse 9 of our passage, uh, John points it out, right? It says, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And so that's the context. And in verses 5 to 6, it says that Jesus is in a town called Sychar, He's sitting beside the well um, because he's thirsty, and it is about the sixth hour. Okay, so if the day started at 6 a.m., which is what it would usually start out for people back in that day, 6 a.m., then the sixth hour would be noon, right, 12 p.m. For for you, that's like the first hour, 12 p.m. But this was the hottest part of the day, right? Um, So so this is a scene, verse 7. We'll pick up in verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. 
The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Okay, you can stop there. There are a few things about that picture that aren't normal. Um, there's things that go against societal norms and expectations. And, and John mentioned some of those. You guys just saw it. Uh, it was not unusual for, for women to be at the well to draw water. In fact, that was like their time to socialize, to meet other women. Um, but, but that would usually happen either early in the morning or later in the evening. Okay? You didn't want to be out there, much less like carrying this heavy jug of water back to your house when it was hot. And yet, when you look at the details here, this woman is out there at 12 noon, right? And she's alone, and it's the hottest part of the day. Okay, so that's unusual. And then, as John points out, it was also socially taboo for someone like Jesus, who is a man, who is influential, who was this uh, perceived rabbi, to be speaking with this Samaritan, that's one degree of separation, woman, two degrees of separation, Right? And it's, it's so odd that even for this woman, it catches her off guard because she asks him about it. Um, when you have time, it's interesting to actually compare and contrast Nicodemus with this Samaritan woman. Nicodemus shows up in chapter 3, right before this. Uh, we, we meet him when he approaches Jesus and he's hoping to learn something from him. He understands that Jesus is a special rabbi. Um, and Nicodemus is a man. Right? He's a Pharisee, which means he's uh, he's learned, he's respected, he is high up, he's orthodox, he's an insider. Uh, we learn his name, right? Like his name is Nicodemus. Um, and it says that he came to Jesus by night. And then you compare him to this woman, and this woman is the opposite. She doesn't have a name. She's female. She's a Samaritan. She's an outsider. And she comes in the middle of the day. So these two people could not be more different um, but Jesus talks to both of them. What does he say to them? Verse 7. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. And like we said, this, this whole like engaging her catches her by surprise. And she's like, like, how is this happening right now? How is this man talking to me? How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? Verse 10. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God... And who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. It's at this point in the conversation that I think we start to understand why Jesus must needs go through Samaria. Why he wanted to go there and why he wanted to talk to this woman. He didn't just want a drink of water, right? He wasn't just like, it wasn't just hot and he was just thirsty. He's talking about something greater. He asked this woman for something earthly, right? He says, give me a drink because he wanted to show her that there was something spiritual that he could offer. He calls it living water. Now, before we jump too far ahead, the way that she understands Jesus's words here, living water, is that he's talking about flowing uh, or moving water. Okay, that's that's the double meaning of living water. Living water is uh, like fresh water. It's, it's running water. It's, it's water that comes from a spring or a stream or a river as opposed to well water or water that's standing still, right? Stagnant water. Um, maybe a modern day equivalent is like it's like filtered water versus tap water. Or, or you guys know there's like different brands of bottled water, right? There's like the ones that no one likes, like Kirkland or 
uh, Dasani. I, I saw a picture, like a meme the other day, like people were kind of uh, going crazy, you know, on the water section during the pandemic, and there's still like, it was all empty and there's just Dasani water still. No one wanted Dasani water even during the pandemic. Um, yeah, so it's like Voss water or like Avian or whatever, smart water versus Dasani water, right? Like quality water versus stagnant still water. And so he says, okay, I have living water to offer you. And she looks at him and she's like, sir, you have nothing, verse 11, you have nothing to draw water with. But she's interested. She's like, where do I get this living, moving, fresh water? Where do you get it? Uh, she says, are you greater than our father uh, Jacob, right, who gave us this well? And Jacob was this patriarch who, who dug this well, who drank from it himself. And so she's thinking literal water. Jesus is talking about spiritual water. And then he does it again with the word thirsty. Verse 13. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so now this woman must be thinking like, what? Not, not just like fresh, moving, flowing water, but a water that will actually never make me thirsty again. Like, like that's actually supernatural, right? That's actually magic water that will never make you thirsty again. But, but she's still not quite there, right? She's still not quite on the same wavelength as Jesus. And we know that because John says that she's still thinking in terms of, do I have to go to this well again? Uh, verse 15, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or we'll have to come here to draw water. And so that leads us to just this first principle or this first truth that I want to pull out and just to remind us of our identity as worshipers. And it's this, see beyond the earthly to spiritual realities. See beyond the earthly to spiritual realities. It's clear what's happening in this conversation between Jesus and this woman. And they are just on totally different planes like they're missing each other. She's hearing him, but she's not really hearing him. Um, and to her credit, it's not like she's just a total like atheist, right? Or like secularist. Um, she's actually religious. And we're going to see that later on. Um, not only that, but Nicodemus like did the same thing. Jesus told him, unless one is born again, you can't see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus thinks that Jesus is speaking literally. He's like, how, you know, how can I, you know, I'm old. How can I be born again? Do I like go through my mom again? Like, how does that work? And these were like strange things that Jesus was saying. The question is, the question that I'm asking is, do you recognize that there are spiritual realities beyond all the earthly things that you do? Like if you were that woman, if Jesus were talking to you, would you be able to perceive that he's talking about something more, that he's getting beneath the surface to something more substantial. And I'm not just talking about things that we might consider um, like secular versus sacred. You know, sometimes we like to comp, uh, like make different areas of our lives, right? We say, oh, going to church is sacred versus studying for your classes is just a secular thing. Um, reading your Bible versus browsing the internet. If you're here on Sunday, I thought Pastor Eric did a good job of showing us this from John 21. Um, John 21 is where Jesus reveals himself to his disciples. They're, they're just out on this very ordinary, unremarkable fishing trip. And Jesus meets them and he reveals himself to them. And 
Uh, one of the points that he made is we think that Jesus meets us only in the very special or monumental times of our lives. Right? We think Jesus only meets us when we're successful, when things are going well. But in that passage, John 21, Jesus meets his disciples in the mundane. They're just doing their day jobs. Right? They're just out fishing. And he even meets them in their failures and in their lack. They're out all night and they can't even catch anything. And Jesus meets them. And so the point he made is Jesus reveals himself to us everywhere, again and again, if we would have eyes to see and ears to listen. And so in the same way, God's word says that everything that you do, right, secular or sacred, everything that you do, every area of your life has spiritual significance. Uh, 1 Corinthians 10.31, it says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. And I I think that's not a complicated truth to comprehend, right? Like you've heard it before, Leighton just shared about it, all of life is worship. But I think it's one that is so easy to forget in the busyness and the hustle and bustle of life. And when there are urgent deadlines coming up, it's hard to remember that there are things more important than those deadlines. When, When you're out having fun with friends And enjoying the different opportunities of college life, it's hard to remember that there are things that are more enjoyable and more important than than enjoying those things. When everyone else around you is stressed out about grades or career or future, it's hard to remember that there are things more important than grades or career or your future. And there are so many different applications that I think we could point to, but let me just mention one. one. One specific application under this point. I want you to consider when it comes to decision-making, when you choose why you do the things that you do, and I want you to think big decisions, but also small decisions. How do you evaluate those things? What is your standard? What is your rubric? What is the grid through which you evaluate your decisions? Do you look at the different decisions and areas of your lives with a spiritual lens? Let me get more specific. That means thinking in terms of growth in Christ-likeness and guarding yourself from sin. Okay, those are broad categories, but I'll narrow it down to those. Growth in Christ-likeness and guarding yourself from sin. Do you see those things as your greatest goal and as your greatest danger? Um, I think of Hebrews 12, 1-2, where the author says, Let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So you don't, not just thinking in terms of like what is allowed and what is not allowed, what's sinful, what's not sinful, but what is going to slow me down and what is going to help me run. What is going to make me love Jesus more and what is going to make me hate sin more. And when it comes to decision making, why you do the things you do, it's easy to be thoughtless about it. Right, or just to go along with everyone else, or just do whatever is the most fun, do whatever feels good, um, do whatever makes the most sense in terms of your career or practically or logistically. And one of the verses that um, Seichi mentioned last week is, is sobering to think about, Matthew 16, 26. It says, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world, but forfeits his soul? Um, or I think of the parable of the rich fool in Luke 12, um, who this guy, he concerns himself so much with how I'm going to keep my stuff, right? How will I store all of my possessions? And God says to him one night, fool, this night your soul is required of you. 
and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? And so do you look at things through a spiritual lens? Do you give enough thought to your spiritual life? Do you pay attention to the state of your soul? And going back to verse 15, when the woman says, give me this water so I won't thirst again, um, I do wonder if she's starting to get there, right? even just a little bit. She's starting to understand, okay, he's, he's talking maybe a, about a, a, something a little bit more. I wonder if she's feeling, okay, I, I don't just want to thirst again, but I don't want to thirst again. And that's exactly where Jesus heads next in the conversation. And this leads us to our second point. Realize that everyone worships something. Verse 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you were right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Okay, this is kind of crazy what Jesus does here. Right? Like he basically uncovers probably one of the most personal, one of the most sensitive, one of the most painful parts of her life. And you read that and it like it almost seems kind of mean, right? Like Jesus is just really harsh or brutal with this woman. And I mean, you think about it, five husbands is a lot. Okay, even for our day, right? Five husbands is a lot. And, and not only that, but she's still currently in bed with someone else, right? She's with another man who's not her husband. And we're not given more information about what happened with each of them. Uh, maybe she was the one who, who just cycled through all of them. Or maybe they were the ones who cycled through her. Or maybe uh, she was like a serial adulterer kind of thing. Or maybe she was more of a victim. Uh, maybe some of them passed away. Or maybe all of the above. We don't know. But either way, she's clearly experienced sin, suffering, and shame. And now we realize why she was out there drawing water at the hottest part of the day. It's because she wanted to be alone. It's because she had a reputation and she didn't want other people there because others, uh, they looked at her a certain way. Now, if you're that woman and, and Jesus just drops this bomb on you, like how in the world are you supposed to respond to that? Right. Uh, I think it was me. I would like just faint or like I would run away. Uh, but she, she does what maybe some uh, of you guys might do. She changes the subject. Look at verse 19. The woman said to her, or the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. So she understands that, that Jesus obviously has some sort of authority. And so he, uh, she seeks his opinion on something. Um, we mentioned earlier that there was this animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. Right? And, and some of it is just... Uh, not just racial, but it's also religious. For example, the Samaritans, um, one of the things that made them different from the Jews is they only held to the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. Um, and it's because they thought that after the time of Moses, that Judaism actually became corrupt. Um, and so they only believed in the, the Pentateuch. And so because of that, because they rejected much of the Jewish Old Testament, they had different conclusions about where the temple, which is the place of worship, uh, where the temple was supposed to be. And so the Jews, they built their temple in Jerusalem or on Mount Zion, which is kind of the peak of Jerusalem. But the Samaritans, they built their temple somewhere else um, on this place called Mount Gerizim. And that's uh, what she's talking about in verse 20. And so she, she brings up this question for Jesus to kind of deflect the conversation. And Jesus actually does answer her question because it is important between Jews and, Gent or Jews and Samaritans. 
And his answer is in verse 22, he says, the Jews have it right, um, at least when it comes to the temple question. But he also says that in the end, that question is going to be obsolete, right? Um, He says that true worshipers worship the Father in spirit. So uh, all, all he means by that is that worship is spiritual, not location. That's not the most important thing. And they worship the Father in truth, and that's according to right knowledge, right? You worship God according to the right knowledge. Um, For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. And so this woman is focused on worship taking place on the correct mountain, but that's not what Jesus is most concerned about. He wants to get at the worship going on in her heart. See, for this Samaritan woman, her string of past relationships shows us that she thirsted for something. She was looking for something, whether it was intimacy or to be loved or even just sex and pleasure. And that desire occupied an inordinate place in her heart. For her, that was the way to the good life. That was her salvation. And yet, you see just throughout her past, like it never satisfied. Husband after husband, she was still left thirsty. And if you've been here at Lighthouse, like you've heard this before, right? We talk about it all the time. Um, If you're new, just stick around and you'll hear it. Um, But it's not a matter of whether we worship, but what we worship. We all live for something. We all place our faith in. We all devote our lives to something, hoping that it will give us what we're looking for. There is something that takes first place in our lives that sits on the thrones of our hearts. And if it's anything other than God, then it's an idol. And by idol, we're not just talking about a golden calf. We're not just talking about a statue that you bow down to. An idol, it can be an otherwise good thing that has become an ultimate thing. Um, I think Romans 1.25 gives a good picture of this. It says that we have exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and we have worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. And so for this woman, for example, relationships are good, right? They're a good thing. We're meant to enjoy them, but you're not meant to worship them. Success is a good thing. You're meant to enjoy it, but it's not meant to satisfy you forever. Uh, There's a a verse in Jeremiah 2.13 that describes what's happening in idolatry and in worship that actually uses that living water language that we saw earlier. It says this, Jeremiah 2.13, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and they have hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So in our idolatry, we reject and we turn away from God. We forsake God who we were made to worship, right? We forsake God who truly satisfies the fount of living water. But not only that, we settle for stagnant water. We settle for for the water in man-made cisterns. And like this woman experienced, maybe you've experienced for your own life, they don't hold water, right? We, we have to keep going back to it over and over again until it never satisfies. And so what is that thing for you? What are those idols that are competing for your worship and first place in your heart? And if you're not sure, let me have you think about just your time, your priorities, the things that you talk about, the things that you think about and daydream about. Uh, what makes you excited? What makes you happy and fulfilled? What makes you sad? What do you fear losing? 
What motivates you to do the things that you do? And maybe for you, what you say, oh, I want to make lots of money, right? Or I want a stable job, or I want to get good grades, or I want to have lots of friends. I want to get married someday, have kids, have a family. Or maybe it's just as simple, I want to have a lot of fun, right? I just want to enjoy life. What is that for you? And then ask yourself, what are you hoping that that thing will do for you? Like maybe that is your way of seeking acceptance or belonging. Or maybe that is your way of feeling loved or gaining comfort or security or feeling like you have control of your life. Maybe you think, okay, once I get that career, I feel like I'll have my life down, right? Like I'll, I'll, I'll be in control. I don't have to worry about anything. Now I know that might seem kind of abstract. So what does this look like in everyday life? And I think this is where our first two points come together. Um, I tried to think of a different way to say it, but I, I think Pastor Kim's illustration is, is super helpful, so I'm just going to steal from him. But if you imagine there are two fires, right? one fire being your worship of God and the other fire being your worship of your idols. When you think about the things that you do, when you think about the things that you take in throughout your day or your week, does that fuel your worship of God or does that fuel your worship of your idols? I mean, for some of you, realize that things that might seem harmless or insignificant, like social media or watching certain TV shows or even like bringing up certain topics of conversation, um, that they not only distract you and they take you away from worship of God, but they're actually contributing to your worship of something else. For example, if the love of money or materialism is something that you know that you struggle with, then of course, like online window shopping, of course, browsing through Redfin or reading about stocks all the time is going to be unhelpful for you. And those aren't necessarily bad things, right? But they're feeling your worship of this other thing. And so what are some things that you need to actively guard your heart against? And what are some things that you can incorporate into your life to feel your worship of God? How are you growing in your knowledge of Christ so that your affections are stirred? So that you can see Christ as more worthy, as better than your idols. Um, I like how the author Jamie Smith put it. He says that if the things that we love, if the things that we find uh, attractive and worthy, if those things can be formed and shaped and grown over time, then he says you need to curate your heart. Right? I like that word, curate. It makes me think of a museum. Right, to, to thoughtfully, carefully pull together, sift through, to select the content that's going to be exhibited. You have to curate your heart. You have to be attentive to and intentional about what you love. So everybody worships something. What is that for you? All right, last point here. Point number three, respond to God who seeks worshipers of Christ. Respond to God who seeks worshipers of Christ. This one's going to be shorter. Uh, but I think necessary, because if we just left it at those first two points, uh, it would almost feel a little incomplete, right? Because you would understand that, sure, there's like spiritual realities. You would understand that everybody worships something, uh, but it's like, it's just, it's just making an observation, right? It's just like presenting a diagnosis without giving the end goal. So here's the end goal. God seeks to make worshipers of Christ. And so that means that he calls us to respond. That means that he calls us to turn and see and adore the worthiness of him. Pick up in verse 25. We, we said earlier that this woman is a religious woman. And so in verse 25, we find out that she actually had some sense of uh, a coming Messiah. 
Right? She had this expectation of this Messiah who would come. Uh, verse 25 says, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. So she has some sense that the Christ, and Christ is not a last name, it's a title. It means anointed one. That this Christ will come and make things right. And in her words, that this Christ will come and provide the answers to our questions. Right? Tell us uh, all things. So she's waiting for someone. And then Jesus, in verse 26, finally, after all of this conversation about being thirsty, about living water, about her five husbands, about which mountain to worship on, in verse 26, he finally reveals his identity. And he says, I who speak to you am he. He says, I am the one you're waiting for. He says, true worship is not about a place or a mountain. It is about a person. And I am that person. And all of those desires that you were trying to fulfill by looking elsewhere, like we just talked about, that thirst that you were trying to satisfy, it is meant to be found in the person of Jesus Christ. And look at how she responds to Jesus' self-revelation. Verse 27. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? Verse 28. So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Uh, That detail in verse 28, I think is really interesting. You think about the very beginning of our passage when she first encounters Jesus, she is there to draw water from the well. And here in verse 28, she leaves her water jar behind to go into town. At the beginning of our passage, she had come at the hottest part of the day, the sixth hour, just to avoid everyone else because of what she's done in the past. And after meeting Jesus, she's going to where the people are, and she tells them, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. This is a a fulfillment of what Jesus said in verse 14. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. See, when you've tasted of living water, when you've tasted of eternal life, when you've tasted of the worthiness of Jesus, it expels all those other desires and affections. When you've tasted of the worthiness of Jesus, it overflows out from your life into the lives of others. And so, college student, let me ask you, how do you live your life in a way that displays the worthiness of Christ? How do you live your life in a way that shows that he is the most important, the most precious, the most valuable thing in your life? I think some of the the best and the greatest opportunities that you will get to display the worth of Christ is actually when things don't go your way. And I'm sure that you will encounter your fair share of that during your college years when, when plans don't pan out, when relationships don't work out, when your grades aren't what you hoped, times of loss and suffering and disappointment. And those are opportunities to show that Jesus is better, right? that he is the most important thing to me. Sure, losing this other thing hurts, it's painful, but I have Jesus and that is enough. Right? That's how you show that he is valuable. One last thought here. <clears throat> God doesn't just seek out worshipers of Christ. But I want you to realize that that is the cause that God himself is committed to. 
I mean, we see that in our passage with some of the details that we pointed out, right? How, how Jesus must needs pass through Samaria, how he intentionally approached this Samaritan woman who he otherwise had no business engaging with. Jesus moves toward his people so that they might taste, right? So he might offer them living water so that they might taste of his worthiness and that might lead to worship of him. Turn to Revelation 5. We'll end here. Revelation 5. This is a picture. I want to show you this because this is a picture of what's going to happen in the end. And I want you to see that worship and the things that we say everyone worships. It's not just a buzzword, right? It's not just like, oh, this is a paradigm of how to think through the Christian life. This is just how we talk about things at Lighthouse. No, I want you to comprehend the bigness of what we're talking about. That worship is actually what all of history, what all of God's creation is all about. This is what we are moving towards, what God is moving everything towards. I want you to realize, like, worship is so much bigger than just your own life, right? Than just the things going on in college for you. And when you think about the bigness of that, this is what we get to join in on as worshipers of Christ. I'll read uh, starting in verse 11 to verse 14. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and living creatures and the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the five living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. And that's a picture of what's going to happen in the end. That's a good picture of what we get to join in on with the rest of creation. So we can realize you are a worshiper, right? This is so much bigger than just you. So be faithful and think through, okay, what does this look like in my life? Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for um, the worthiness of Christ. We thank you that for those of us who have a saving relationship with your son, that we have tasted of his loveliness, we have tasted of the living water that he so graciously offers. And Lord, we want to be like those overflowing springs who testify to the worthiness and the value of Christ. I pray for these college students as they go about the many things that fill their schedules, uh, that they wouldn't just be things that they do, but that they would be avenues, means to worship you, to show that Christ is the most important thing in their lives. We worship you, we, uh, we acknowledge you, we ascribe honor and praise and glory to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.